Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Durham, North Carolina is a city that has blossomed out of the tobacco industry, and it was originally fueled by manufacturing. It's gone through many phases since, and the old factory spaces now house performing arts centers and bougie lofts. But Durham also has a long and varied musical history that goes back more than a century. Then and now, it's been a center for jazz, hip-hop, Americana country rock, and most of all, Piedmont blues. Back when Durham was becoming known as the Bull City, its soundtrack was Piedmont Blues, as played by giants like Blind Boy Fuller. In the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, factory workers made up the audience for blues and other developing styles of music. Nowadays, it's tech workers and college students who flock to the city's live music venues. It's a long way from Durham's early days, but the changes are still coming fast as battles over segregation have evolved into disputes over equity and gentrification. And yet what hasn't changed is that it remains a great music town for artists and fans alike. This is Durham. From the bluegrass situation in Come Here, North Carolina, this is Carolina Calling, a series exploring the history of North Carolina as told through its music and the musicians who made it. I'm David Minconi, and this is Durham. At the close of the Civil War in 1865, fewer than 100 people lived in the village of Durham, but its population grew to 50,000 by the 1930s. Most of those people came for economic opportunity to take jobs in Durham's tobacco warehouses and factories. Especially African-American families who settled in the Haytide district, turning it into a bustling center for blues and gospel. Here is Glenn Henson, a folklorist at the University of North Carolina. The music was happening in every African-American community in Durham. And if you map Durham, folks think about Haiti now as the center of Black Durham because that was the, the center of the Black business history in the 1920s and 30s. But really, one could look at Hickstown, one could look at Bragtown, one could look at the West End. Everywhere where there were African-American communities, the music was happening. And the music was happening there specifically on weekend evenings where it was a music of the house party's geographic bounds. Wherever there was an African-American community or neighborhood, the music was happening. Some of these musicians were among the most renowned legends in all of blues. Those who are most well-known to the outside world are Blind Boy Fuller, Mr. Fulton Allen, 
Sonny Terry, Saunders Terrell, who was a harmonica player. Bull City Red, who was a guitar player. His name is George, guitar player, washboard player. Brownie McGee, who was a guitar player and singer. And Blind Gary Davis, also known as Reverend Gary Davis. The musicians who I just named were the musicians who recorded and thus the musicians who were most well-known to the outside world. They were only a tiny part of a much broader community of musicians. This was a community that was broad and consisted literally of scores of musicians, guitar players, mandolin players, harmonica players, washboard players, accordion players. They were all part of this vibrant, active community of artistry. The music was also happening on the streets of Durham, and the street music tended to be more focused on downtown Durham, which was largely a white space, not all, because Parish Street had this thriving black business district. The centers of the black business district, the music was always happening there. Music was also happening near the tobacco factories, especially on weekends, because when the shifts in the tobacco factories got out, folks would leave the factories, walk down Pettigrew Street towards Haytai, or they would walk up Fayetteville Street and then up to North Durham Five Points in that area there. And the musicians would position themselves, particularly on Fridays, which would be paydays, along the route in which these folks would be walking because they knew they had all been paid in cash. I'm gonna kill you one black red. One day I'm gonna find Downtown Durham's initial heyday didn't survive beyond the blues era. The career of John D. Holman mirrors the decline of downtown and the evolution of the blues audience from black to white. John D. Holman was one of those artists who claimed the latter day existence of the blues in Durham. You know, if one looks at Durham during that period, when one talks about the end of Durham's blues musical heyday, most often folks point to the impact of the Second World War and the fact that with the Second World War, a lot of folks who were in Durham, many of whom were artists, but were also working folks, found greater opportunities elsewhere. And so they followed the great migration paths and they sought other opportunities. Holman moved to Durham in 1953, long after the core figures in the city had left, but when there was still a pretty vibrant scene. The warehouse scene had changed at that point. The factory scene was changing quickly. The presence of a very large African-American middle class, which had been enabled by the tobacco factories in Durham, as those factories mechanized, those job opportunities reduced. Eventually, as those factories reduced the workforce even more and eventually closed, there weren't folks on the streets in the same kind of way. There wasn't the free money, the freer money that was enabled by the tobacco factories. So folks like John D. Holman, he found himself playing to smaller and smaller and smaller localized audiences. He kept the music very much alive in the community, he and others, but they were playing more for family and friends 
than they were for broader communities until the late 70s, when suddenly there was increasing white interest in the music. And then suddenly John D. Holman, Friss Holloway, and others who were still playing in Durham found themselves playing increasingly for white audiences at festivals and at clubs. And that was the whole change of the scene for them. This pre-World War II blues era in Durham was an underground scene, not widely acknowledged in the city's so-called respectable quarters. It wasn't musicians playing in theaters or nightclubs, so much as busking in tobacco warehouses or living rooms during rent parties. Perhaps that accounts for the city father's curious reluctance to acknowledge Durham's history when it comes to the blues. For decades, there were those who felt that this music was not a music of which one should be particularly proud. It was a music that was very much a street music, a rough and tumble party music, not the kind of music that a city would necessarily want to associate itself with. And so I think that there was, I think there was resistance on all sides. Though I think even since the 70s, there have been celebrations of the music. Eventually, with the emergence of the the Boulder and Blues Festival, there was always a kind of embrace of this legacy. In that, older blues has a fair amount in common with the modern day hip hop that arose on Durham's college campuses, especially Little Brother, a rap trio that formed at North Carolina Central University in the 1990s. The blues and hip hop are related in the subject matter and communities of creativity. And those musics, if one were to look at that trajectory, one would come up with hip hop now. But it's the serving, it's the similar community that's creating, it's similar communities that are listening and celebrating the music. Hip hop is perhaps more explicitly political, though I would argue that in the 1920s and 1930s, the blues and especially the regional blues focus on everyday conditions and celebration of everyday black life was eminently political as well. It was always a music that was created in spite of and not in response to, but in a claiming of an alternate world that which the man would have African-Americans in their partake of. Downtown Durham underwent a major revitalization over the course of two decades. Today, there exists an active and progressive community of music makers in all genres. One such artist is Alice Girard, a Bluegrass Hall of Famer from the pioneering 1970s duo Hazel and Alice, who also founded the folk music magazine The Old Time Herald. The reason I moved down to Durham was I had been living up in Galax, Virginia. I'd, I'd lived there for about eight to nine years. And while I was there, I started the Old Time Herald magazine. And it soon became real clear that I was going to need more resources than I had up there. If it had just been about the music, I could have just stayed up in Galax. But it was about the magazine. And I got a little grant here to have somebody come in it was possible to have a computer. It was possible to have um, somebody show me how to set it up on PageMaker. And there were just the resources here to help. 
primarily with the magazine. But when I came down here and put together a band that was focused on my music, then that just it gave me more permission to sort of, I wasn't learning from somebody, I was doing my thing. You're always learning from people everywhere, all the time, constantly, it'll never end. But I mean that, that hard focus on older musicians, the elders of the tradition, and just listening to them and absorbing their stories and their music. But I was also focusing more on myself. And I, I feel like that's one of the reasons that I moved down here too, was, was that was a conscious thing in a certain way. It wasn't like, I've just got to do my own thing. I'm so tired of, you know, it wasn't like that, but it was, I just, you know, I need to figure out how to make my music. And at the same time that I want to still want to do all these other things too. While teaching at Duke University's Center for Documentary Studies, Alice became a mentor to generations of younger artists. One who also became a collaborator was M.C. Taylor of Grammy-nominated Americana supergroup His Golden Messenger, who worked as her graduate assistant. Alice Gerard is inspiring to me in a lot of ways. She's a very soulful person, which is a kind of a subjective description, but she seems to feel things in ways that are, are instructive to me. Like she, she's in touch with the heart of things. For, for how much deep knowledge she has about old time and traditional music, she wears that expertise pretty, pretty easily. She's not very academic about it. Like she, she loves it because it speaks to her soul and it's always been really inspirational to me. Like she's just, she's an easy person with a deep connection to that type of music, as opposed to the type of person that is kind of academic and, and very exacting about the rules of it. I was really drawn to that, particularly when I was kind of new to the area and understanding different ways to deal with traditional music. I was really drawn toward the sort of easygoing way that Alice Gerard had with it. I've always got one part of my heart and brain listening to the tradition and that that informs what I do in the present with a song or like a chord progression. But other things inform that too because I grew up listening to not traditional music, but people like Frankie Lane and Rosemary Clooney. And of course, the Harry Smith anthology, that was the biggest deal in my whole life up to that point, really, musically. And there was everything on there. There was blues, there was ballads, there was Cajun music. There wasn't rock and roll, but I got that. And then when the Beatles came in, I was listening to Flatt and Scruggs and the Stanley Brothers more than the Beatles, but they were there. And so I listened to, because I didn't grow up in a, what you might call a traditional culture. I was listening to whatever was popular at the time, but I'm always informed by tradition to some extent, e even today. I mean, I'm, now I'm speaking musically. As far as lyrically, 
you know, that's a whole nother thing. You write what you write. And that's not informed by anything except my own conscience <laughs> or my own. It's been a sad day today. It's a happy day next day. Stuff like that. Another fixture of Durham's musical community is Reese Palmer, an African-American country singer who's had success on the country singles charts and hosts her own show, Color Me Country, on Waking Apple Music. I was actually taken aback by how robust the music scene is here. And I was really quite inspired by the fact that a lot of the music is independent and a lot of these artists are... They're like little industries, little cottage industries within themselves. I was really taken by how you could have a whole career here and really just stay within the state and do very well and be very successful. If I had to describe what the music scene is like here, what the music community is here, I would say that it is extremely cooperative probably the most cooperative music community I've ever been in. I've lived in New York, I've lived in Los Angeles, I've lived in Atlanta, I've lived in Nashville. And I don't know of any other place where people just regularly come together to collaborate, to do shows together, to work together for the community. It's really inspiring. The arts community here is just extremely strong, like the Durham Arts Council, the North Carolina Arts Council. They are the most hands-on and they're very much in the streets, so to speak. And so like they know what's going on. They know who's here, what everyone's doing. They're always out lending a hand. And I've never had someone reach out to me and like, hey, we have a $10,000 grant. You should apply for this. We're not saying we're going to give it to you, but like you should apply for this. You should know about this. You should be a part of this. They're extremely proactive. It's a community that wants their artists to thrive. They actually care about artists here. Go figure. And so I think that's why the music scene is so robust. I think that's why it's so varied. That's why it's so alive. So you get hip hop, you get country, you get bluegrass, you get folk music, you get Americana music, you get R&B, you get gospel. And it's all within the, a 50 mile radius, which is amazing. I don't know if there's something in the air, in the water, I don't know. But if you have a dream in Durham, you can make it happen. Nina Freelon, a Grammy-nominated jazz singer, composer, and producer based in Durham, sees the self-sustaining bloom of Durham as the result of multiple sources. So there are a couple of engines that fuel the music scene here. There's a community engine which I credit to Brother Youssef. That's Youssef Salem. And the culture that he created from the ground up with the uh, idea that anybody who loves this music can play this music or sing this music. And a very welcoming, loving, equal opportunity type of vibe he had. So he was from Baltimore and I didn't know of him at that time, but many of the old timers would tell me about him. He was a real jazz luminary. And he came here, adopted the Muslim faith and had a real impact on Durham and the surrounding areas. And then there were the universities that are also engines. They bring people to the area. They bring musicians to the area. 
And then there's a cultural engine through the Durham Arts Council, which I actually got my start through the Durham Arts Council, taking a jazz workshop in 85, 86, 87, maybe, with Bus Brown. And it was a community-based workshop. Now, that's unusual because most singers, I don't think, are birthed from the community that they, or, or if they are, they move away and they go to New York or LA, and that's the end of it. But I have been so blessed to have been birthed here, to have been able to remain here and grow here. You know, I didn't have to leave. And I think I'm probably unusual. The talent currently thriving in Durham and adjacent cities, including Chapel Hill and Raleigh, is as wide and diverse as its history. There are so many. You know, I, I tend to think more like maybe in the triangle because some people that, that I might think of as Durham musicians might not actually live here. But let's see Watch House, formerly Mandolin Orange, Mipso, Sylvanesso. Gosh, there are so many. Charlotte Ammons, Hot at Nights, Mountain Goats, the whole Merge Records family, which is my record label that is based in, in, in Durham. Superchunk, Flock of Dimes, Jen Wasner's band. Tatiana Hargraves. Reed Stutz, Sonia Bedigian. His golden messenger is, I think he's just an incredible writer and thinker, aside from being just a really great singer, but I love his brain. Kamara Thomas, she's just like earth mother, storyteller, myth spinner, like she's pretty amazing. Phil Cook is here, he's amazing. Tamisha Wadden, so many people, the Lomelands, Shauna Tucker, Yolanda Rabin, Sylvan Esso is fantastic and lord blue cactus john shane like just there's so many people there's so much good stuff here but this thriving scene didn't happen overnight or accidentally since the 1990s there has been a major investment in the revitalization of the downtown area which has brought changes both positive and negative bill kalkoff led a major revitalization effort with the organization downtown durham inc when you go back to 1993 Downtown Durham was struggling very mightily as a downtown. It was basically just a government institution with a couple of restaurants and not a whole lot going on and perceived as being very unsafe. And with the streets rolling up about five o'clock uh, most nights. For me and, and my experience in downtown, and we very diverse culture, lots of people politically active. The challenge to get Duke and NCCU and NC State or Carolina students to come to downtown and enjoy what we were building and then eventually to stay with many of the creative class type companies we recruited became first a challenge, but then we viewed that as a great opportunity and we really did sit down to figure out what did you have to have in a downtown to make people want to stay. When you're, you're starting an organization or a revitalization effort, you need to look at what do we have? What can we build off of? And what was really unique in downtown Durham is we had a great stock of historic, cool looking buildings. A lot of them were, you know, the tobacco warehouse and that. But in the city center, all these kind of cool looking two and three story buildings and stuff. We made Durham unique and authentic because instead of tearing down a lot of buildings, 
we went into historic preservation big time. But the idea was to preserve, you know, the buildings, but turn them into something new from tobacco warehouses to apartment buildings, condo buildings, office buildings, restaurants, et cetera, et cetera. It, it started with that type of thought and goal to have in place of keeping and drawing younger people into our community by growing the uh, office space, growing the restaurant scene, growing the music scene, putting together some, a couple of very major projects like the new ballpark and the Durham Performing Arts Center. All of those things we envisioned working together to build a more dynamic downtown that people would want to come to and live in and play in. Of course, as in many downtown communities, with revitalization comes gentrification. I think that there has been a lot of development. There has been gentrification. There has been improvement. The, the sort of way that Durham has evolved exists on, on a total spectrum. You know, home prices have risen. You see Duke students actually out and about in town here, <laughs> which I think is, is something new. The neighborhoods around downtown, the creative class of people we were recruiting to work into in downtown ended up being the, the forefront of the people of the neighborhoods that they moved into those neighborhoods, bought properties, renovated. In many cases brought, you know, the quality of life in those neighborhoods up and it hasn't stopped. And I don't think it will stop. Our political leaders want to make sure is certainly it is the climate today politically. How do we make sure gentrification doesn't move everybody out who've been longtime residents? We're going to have to work hard at that. As gentrification occurs in downtown Durham, how does a community so rooted in the support of emerging up-and-coming talent maintain its soul? How does Durham remain a fruitful breeding ground for alternative music and music communities? When Apple opens its billion-dollar campus, will Durham remain Durham? Or will we see a repeat of what happened to the blues scene when the factories mechanized? I think of Durham as, as a very progressive place in most of the important ways. I feel like Durham coincides with my own beliefs about how I want people to be treated and what I think is important to be foregrounded in a place. I often think of Durham in the same way that I think of a place like maybe Austin, Texas or Athens, Georgia. Just in terms of the way that all of those cities are sort of bastions of progressive ideas in the midst of places that are maybe a bit more conservative especially the history of Durham being this, the home of Black Wall Street and the home of this extremely, at one point, and when still is a thriving black and brown and white community now, I think definitely inspires me. It inspires my music like a pride. When you're here and when you're, you know, you're just walking around, there's a lot of pride in this town. There's a lot of pride in the people about this town and about its history and about what it's capable of and what it has created and what it has put out into the world that has changed the world at large, not just Durham, not just North Carolina. And you can't help but soak up some of that.
And so musically, I think that I have turned my eye and my focus on social issues, the issues at large, not just love and all the flowery stuff, but like about things that matter globally, the things that matter locally, the things that matter to people like me, to people not like me, but just things that matter to humans. When you're in a place like this, you tend to think more about that as opposed to like what's commercial or what's going to sell or what's going to get on the radio. You tend to focus your art on things that actually matter in the long run. Alice Gerard would know something about that. Around 2016, I think, the North Carolina legislature, which is not known <laughs> for its liberal principles, passed this HB2 bill, which said you had to use the bathroom that corresponded to the gender that was listed on your birth certificate. So if you were transgender or anything different, you could not use the bathroom of your choice. And there was a big uproar about it. And I just said, okay, I'm gonna write this song. So I started writing the song called Old Jim Crow, cause I really feel like Old Jim Crow is trying to come back again. It's, it's bad, you know, as long as the music, old time music has existed, people have given voice to discontent and injustice, all things through their music and They've written songs, they've sung about conditions that are bad, and they've sung about all this stuff. So it's not new to be progressive or have viewpoints about social justice and transgender women's rights, transgender and women's rights, and all everything. It's not new. To Nina Freelon and Reese Palmer, maybe the key to a vibrant, thriving culture is active support in the forms of those community engines, both internal and external. In my artistic growth, the Visiting Arts Program. This program was sponsored by the Department of Cultural Resources. Every county in North Carolina, all 100 counties, had an artist assigned to them. I was assigned to Brunswick County North Carolina back in 80, I think it was 89. And I was the artist for that county. What that meant was I was available without charge to any social organization or school who wanted to use my services. It also meant that I could do exchanges with other artists who were living in other counties. So it was a great exchange so I played in every every city and holla in North Carolina from Maggie Valley to Duck. That changed who I am. And that really encouraged me to trust the music. This was not with a band. This was not with a fancy sound system. This was just me singing a cappella to a group of second graders who never heard of jazz. That really put some steel in my spine about how powerful music is and how it can touch people's hearts and change people's minds. I hope and pray that North Carolina can bring back the Visiting Artists Program because it was not just for me and there were 
there were performing artists, there were visual artists, there were all kinds of artists that uh, were a part of that program. And it really made North Carolina the state of the arts for, sh for real, not just with words, but for real. Here, it's sit down, stay a while, and let's watch you grow, and let's help you grow, and let's figure out what else you can do. What else can you add to your artistry? It's like an incubator, almost. Reese is paying forward that dedication to fostering new talent with her new organization, Color Me Country. So the Color Me Country Artists Grant Fund was started in December of 2020. It's a partnership between myself and Kelly McCartney's Rainy Day Fund, which was primarily focused on BIPOC and LGBTQ plus artists in Americana. So my focus is primarily on artists who are BIPOC, which is Black, Indigenous, people of color, Latinx, so on and so forth, that are pursuing careers in country music. And it's $500 to $1,000. There's no application or anything like that. Just basically reach out to me, or I may reach out to you. And the whole idea is that I know what $500 or what $1,000 can change. You can get a video done for that. You can finish a project. You can pay your rent. You can fix your car. You can get surgery. We have so far been able to help over 50 plus artists in this last year. And we just got a cash infusion from Brandy Carlisle's Looking Out Fund. And CMT just made a very generous donation to the fund. Fiona Prime, John Prime's wife, one day she just was like, for every donation that y'all make, I will make a matching donation. I mean, we've had some very high profile amazing people donate to the fund. But like the thing that I'm most excited about is just the regular people that every month donate $5. I think that's amazing. A ridiculous amount of projects this year have happened because of that fund. So I'm very proud of it. What I don't want someone to do is to stop pursuing their dream because they can't afford it or for a project to go incomplete because you can't afford to finish it. Nina Freelon's North Star Church of the Arts is another organization committed to the support of new and emerging artists in the Durham area. And we are a tiny venue, but we call ourselves Tiny and Mighty. We're gonna be bringing back the idea of the Salon, where there are poets and writers and singers and musicians who feed off of each other and have a place to play in front of an intimate audience to grow their craft and to grow their musicianship because we need that. And the younger you are, the more you need it or the younger you are in your music. People always say to me, oh, I read that you got started late in your career. And while it's true, I was in my thirties when I really began in earnest to push forward. The other truth is that this life is not a race and you start when you start. So I actually work with a lot of older singers, older in age, but young in their music and say, go for it. Durham remains a work in progress and has the sort of gentrification in progress that prices people out. 
There are fears that, with Google and Apple setting up major hubs here, Durham won't be affordable for most artists. Part of the responsibility of the arts with regard to gentrification is to tell the story that happened before you got here. I think that's one way we can keep that legacy alive and allow people an entry point to participate in community, but realize that they are not the creators of it, that there was something that existed prior to their arrival. Whatever the obstacles, however, one thing you can count on about music in Durham, nobody will be stopping anytime soon. And that's a wrap for this edition of Carolina Calling, exploring the history of North Carolina music. Join us on our next stop across the Old North State, Wilmington. Carolina Calling is a production of The Bluegrass Situation in Come Here, North Carolina. This episode was written by Jenna Warnicke, Amy Reitenauer-Jacobs, Chris Jacobs, and me, David McConey. Produced by Shelby Williamson and Justin Hiltner. Edited by Chris Jacobs and associate editor Jenna Warnicke. Special thanks to executive producer Amy Reitenauer-Jacobs at The Bluegrass Situation and Billy Maupin at Come Here, North Carolina. Our theme music is the song Eerie Fiddler, written and recorded by Andrew Marlin. The roots of American music run deep in North Carolina. Learn more by visiting comeherenc.com. Don't forget to follow, subscribe, and rate us wherever you get your podcasts, as it really helps us introduce the show to new listeners. Discover more Roots Music podcasts at thebluegrasssituation.com. I'm David Minconi. Thanks for listening.